0: Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. This week, we revisit our interview with Chris Armitage. Chris is a military veteran who is running a grassroots campaign to unseat Republican Kathy McMorris Rogers in Washington's 5th Congressional District. And his campaign is now starting to gain some recognition and momentum, so it is a great time to get to know him. Also, we have a call to action full of ways you can get involved and make a difference at the state and national level. That is all ahead, so stay with us. My guest, Chris Armitage, is a progressive running for Congress in Washington's 5th District, which includes Spokane and Walla Walla, and which has been represented since 2005 by Republican Kathy McMorris-Rogers. Chris is the first candidate to ever mount a grassroots campaign in the 5th. Chris is an Air Force veteran, and he served in law enforcement as an MP, and it is not common for someone with that sort of background to be a progressive, so I started by asking him how he squared that.
1: Great question. I recently had someone ask me, why am I not a Republican <laughs> with my background? And the, it's really simple. Uh, I, I, you know, I was doing security on the iraq Kuwait border and had great health care, single payer health care, universal for people in the military. And I was helping family members. Uh, my, my mom has lupus, uh, helping her with some co-pays, <laughs> a lot of them. And it was really unfair because my mom's a good person. And she doesn't doesn't have the opportunity to join the military. And even if she did, I don't know if she would want to because of all the terrible things. You know, we killed almost a million people in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, She shouldn't have to serve in the military to have good health care. So the things I had in the military, a living wage, a right to housing, uh, guaranteed food, you know, security in so many different ways, uh, tuition free schooling. I, I got my master's degree and have zero debt. Because of it, um, the, these and, and healthcare, these are all things I think should extend to everyone. I can't imagine leaving that environment and feeling like your own family doesn't deserve that. I, I I just want my parents and my brothers and my my friends and my community to have the same opportunities the military gave me to pursue education and and have good healthcare and have a social safety net.
0: And obviously, without having to put one's life on the line in order to do that, right?
1: Yeah, and it's hard not to feel like the system is designed a little bit that way, where the only shot you have at economic mobility or safety or security is to join the military.
0: That's So, were those things a struggle for you growing up? Uh, you know, having health care, uh, guaranteed housing, things like that? Was that part of your growing up experience?
1: Yeah, I remember, you know, we, we lived in New Jersey when I was young, and it is so expensive there. The housing. It it was flying out of control. And so, uh, you know, it's me, my two brothers and my parents in in fairly small living spaces. And, you know, there were always issues with the landlord. The tenants rights laws weren't very good. And I didn't have health care when I was in high school. I was uninsured. And I remember my mom telling me that in confidence. She didn't want my dad to know that I knew Mm. like so many people in that generation. They feel shame because they can't pay for every bill. You know, my, my mom, you know, has health issues and my dad's like, oh, I can't pay every thousand dollar copay. I must be a failure. And that's crazy. That's the deck is stacked against folks. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have to go through that pain and that struggle. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I remember going off to wrestling meets and I knew, okay, if I get hurt, we might have to skip out on food to get me an x-ray.
0: And those are the sorts of things that American families across the country, and I'm sure also in the Fifth, are are facing every single day. And I know that that is uh, something that you're actively trying to address in your campaign. I want to talk about some of the specifics of your platform. But before we do, I feel like I should mention uh, for listeners that you are also a stand-up comedian. Uh, And I will just ask you— how do you feel comedy translates into politics? Does it cross over in a particular way for you?
1: Absolutely. I think teachers and stand-up comedians are two of the best groups to have as representatives. We're both used to uh, engaging with groups of people and trying to keep them interested. And it, it's a teaching role either way, whether it's stand-up comedy or you're a teacher, you're sharing your experiences with people and hoping they'll take something away with it from it. Uh, in fact, there was even a study done that uh, they had comedians perform sets that had more laughs per minute. Because that's a metric you use as a stand-up comedian, how many laughs per minute you have. I did not and know they that. Compare, Oh, yeah, I can go into a lot of detail, but uh, <laughs> the science of it. Um, but then also uh, they had stand-up comedians who had longer narrative arcs and less laughs, but you know, something emotionally people could take away. And people were, had a, rated their experience as more enjoyable when they got that storytelling in there, when they got some moral lessons they could take away too versus just pure laughs per minute. And it, it, there's a lot of crossover. So the Air Force Times wrote an article about me in 2011 or 20, I don't know, 2012, 2013. Uh, Who Says Cops Have No Sense of Humor was the title <laughs> of the article. And I'm, I'm five foot three. I'm the middle of three boys. Uh, as a stand-up comic, I've had walked off stage before and had people want to fight me. Um, in law enforcement, people will be mad at you. You're the one there and they see you as the bad person. And they get angry. I've had a lot of people want to hit me in my life. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to get a laugh out of them and, and lighten the situation that uh, that served me really well. And it, it absolutely does today. We our campaign laughs so much. We, we have a lot of fun. And when we go out and meet people, someone can be really angry at me, but it's hard to hate someone who you share laughter with. You know, there's a camaraderie that instantly builds when you laugh together. And so that's, that's one of my, I think the, one of the most important traits I bring to all of this. Even when I was a cop, I was a stand-up comic. You know, I, I, I actually ran an ad targeted at Trump supporters. And it said, are you mad at Democrats? Give one a call. And I had a phone number on there, and for two days, I took phone calls from Trump supporters. What was that experience like? It was incredible. I loved it. I want to do it again, but I want to get some high quality video. We need to raise a little bit of money so we can get good video and audio, and I want to visit some of these people because that's what happened last time. Is we had if they didn't curse me out and hang up in the first sixty seconds, we would talk for ninety minutes to two hours. Seriously, and were you able to find common ground? Absolutely. There was this <laughs> there was this woman uh, in named Janet, and she lives a little bit north in a much more rural area in one of the smallest towns in the state. And she started the call with a lot of conspiracy theories um, and anger by the end of the call it was like oh you know you you have this health issue my the same one as my you know it's similar to to what my mom has and i have a concealed carry permit i carried a gun every day i was in the military i don't hate guns and so she she said what was the phrase she said you're not a democrat democrat <laughs> and she invited me up to her property. Her, she said her husband plays country music she, she, and her, her background on her Facebook was a Trump 2020 thing, but she supports me too. Even uh, Matt Shea out here. I talked to one of his supporters wow. and that woman, she supports Matt Shea and she supports me. And I'm not upset about that because I, you know what it comes down to is I said, she's, in, she was anti-vaccines. And I said, I I do believe to attend public school, there should be vaccination requirements. But I don't want to argue the science of it. What I want to argue, or what I want to argue, what I want to propose is corporate accountability. I don't take money from Big Pharma. Right now, they're writing our laws. They're making vaccines and deciding which ones are given. I do believe that vaccines should be mandatory for school, but... Big Pharma shouldn't be the ones deciding that. It should be nonpartisan people. So Noah, my opponent, certainly takes Big Pharma money. Sure. Everyone who's run this race has. So she can trust me to try and get to the honest answer. Well,
0: yes. So that's sort of getting into my next question, which is, why you've chosen to run as a grassroots candidate. And I will just say uh, the fact that you have found somebody who is both a Matt Shea uh, proponent, and I should mention for listeners that Matt Shea is a Republican state representative from Spokane Valley with ties to white nationalism. Uh, I'm imagining it's a very thin Venn diagram of people who support him and also support a progressive. So uh, the fact that you found common ground there is is quite impressive. So you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of running as a grassroots 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 candidate, and I just will mention for listeners that that means no corporate money, no PAC money. First of all, why did you choose to go that route?
1: Well, for one, you know, talk about the Venn diagram of it. I, um, I, I was at a city council meeting recently here in Spokane, and there's a gentleman there who comes to every city council meeting, and he signs up to speak, and he wears a MAGA hat, and he has this giant staff and a big old beard, and he is always upset about something, (laughs) And a few weeks ago, he went to the city council meeting and he said, I'm sick of you giving my tax dollars to these corporations that are all over downtown, the sidewalk in front of their place looks terrible. And you're just giving them our tax dollars to fix their place up. And there's one true blue progressive on our city council and that MAGA guy and the true blue progressive were in total agreement. They were both like, there was a moment of connection of like, yes, I'm the one up here who agrees with you. And the other ones up here, who you think are conservative or or liberal, you're wrong about all of them. They're all corporate. And so I think, there's fa- I think it's pure advantage to being a progressive. Yes, money is harder, but it is only dishonest to take that money and claim that you're going to defend the needs of the 99%. And the only way to do this is to refuse corporate money and tell people that, yes, nobody's buying my vote. You're the only one I'm indebted to. You're the one who put me in office. And that brings on more people. You know, our, uh, we've had candidates in the past who said, I won't take corporate PAC money, but they took money from PACs that received money from corporations. Sure. So the dishonesty bleeds through. And so I
0: I see and we all see how that works at the national level, that somebody like Bernie Sanders, who famously uh, had his $27 uh, contributions, and that works at the nationwide level because you're drawing from a much larger pool of voters, but in a place like the Fifth, I will just ask you very candidly: Are you concerned that you won't be able to raise enough to take on somebody like Kathy McMorris Rogers, who uh, is the number four Republican in the House? She's been around for seven terms, and she absolutely, as I said, does take corporate money.
1: Yeah, we're going to need to raise a lot of money, and it's a challenge. Uh, I have a little bit of a profile as an activist and as a you know stand up, and you know I've always been involved in the community, but to the establishment, I'm a nobody. And so, of course, you know, fundraising is how they determine viability. And you can get upset about it all day, but that's just how the establishment looks at it. That's the metric they use. I'm sure they'd love to have a better metric, but that's what they got. So, sure, they could grab another nobody and say, he hasn't raised enough money. Let's grab someone else who's a nobody and throw corporate money at them. But when I get out here and I talk to people, the, the populist message, the message of the 99% resonates and it only works if through and through you're willing to say exactly where you stand on issues and to walk the walk and not take corporate money. So it's going to be a challenge. We're going to need to raise two or 3 million. But I also think that the story of this district and the future of our nation are compelling. A lot of people here are inspired to be optimistic for the first time in 25 years since uh tom foley lost his seat here the last democrat here speaker of the house a populist to a real uh, man of the people yeah. they say that when he first ran he got elected by shaking hands with people in taverns across the district small town taverns and just saying i'm tom foley and i'm running for congress yeah. so yes it's more of a challenge in some ways but it gives it takes away so many of their weapons against us and it gives us I think the greatest advantage of being able to walk the walk and offer real solutions.
0: Well, so you know, Tom Foley is a really interesting example. Uh, as as you mentioned, he was a lion of the house. He was a speaker of the house. He served from 65 to 95. Um, and at that time, and it's hard to conceive, but the fifth used to be a democratic stronghold. And it has shifted, which I, I think means potentially that it can shift again. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on how and maybe even where you might see that sort of thing happening. So, you know, we know that there are a lot of Democrats in Spokane and Walla Walla, but the rest of the district currently is very red. You need to expand the number of Democratic voters to sort of make those sorts of shifts. How do you see this calculus playing out?
1: Yeah, I actually got to speak to Heather Foley about 2 weeks ago. Hello. Uh Tom Foley's widow, yeah. And we talked a lot about exactly that and she said, "Chris, if you want to win those rural counties that he always won, you go out there and you meet the people." That it's it sounds simple, it might sound folksy, but it's true. Our candidates in the past walked for office. They didn't run for office. They didn't have the passion that you need because they couldn't relate to the problems people were going through.
0: I just have to point so, that out. I love that they walked for office, they didn't run for office. That's, that's, put that on a bumper sticker, man. That's great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Appreciate it. I'll, I'll definitely remember that. Uh, I, it's one of my favorite things to say, because it's true. We had people who kind of just raised their hand and said, oh, I guess I'll do it if nobody else is going to, and I have a bunch of money. And that's not what we're about. We're running a ten-county plan here. We're, you know, we we had uh, folks in Ponderay up north and Ponderay County, and they were saying that in 2018, uh, our our last candidate, their campaign, asked for those folks to bust down to Spokane and campaign, or sorry, and canvas in Spokane County, not in Ponderay County that's not what we're asking people to do. We want them to canvas in their neighborhoods, meet their neighbors. You know, they have they're the ones who have the most shared experience. Get us a few hundred more votes in each of those eight counties that get ignored. Yeah. And so by actually showing people like, no, we're not going to just replace a Republican with another person who says, oh, I'm a, I'm a member of Congress. So of course it's going to be hard to get a hold of me and you're never going to see me in your town. No, 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 no we're going out to these areas and we're saying this is our campaign this is what we're about you can we're not taking corporate money these are the policies we stand for we have shared experience i've made minimum wage the current federal minimum wage I have avoided going to the doctor because I don't know if it's going to be covered. I have avoided going to the doctor because who knows what kind of bill you're going to get in the mail. And I've seen my friends and family suffer because of these broken systems that someone who's been in politics for 40 years or who comes from a privileged background just can't relate to. So when we go to these other counties, I'm making friends with people. And that's something my opponent can't do. And that's how we turn those counties. You know, reputation does it. Character does it.
0: Yeah, you're just you're going uh, door by door, as you say. You're you're walking uh, instead of running for office. I just I just love that. Um, and that you're you're talking about some of the areas of uh, shared experience. And I know that you're a supporter of Medicare for all, specifically Bernie Sanders' plan. And people really love this until you get to the numbers, and then people start to become very apprehensive. First of all, what have you heard from voters as you're talking to them? And then how do you how do you bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, the most pushback I've gotten was while we were canvassing the other day, a physician talked about how uh, they've they limit the amount of Medicare recipients they'll accept because the billing is, is such a pain in the pain in the side. Yeah. And, you know, what I talked to him about was I said, I had TRICARE when I was in the military. That's the lens I use for pretty much everything. And I TRICARE care. is
0: that the, that is the health insurance for members of the military?
1: Yes, okay. you have paid staff doc- doctors who are active duty military, and they run the clinics and even hospitals, and they have most of the equipment you could possibly need. And that's the thing; these hospitals are even doing internal billing. They say, "Okay, if we're going to send you up for an MRI, we're going to need to figure out, you know, send them bill to your insurance company for that, and all these different things." And so, I saw in the military that we could. What we did in the military could be moved over to the civilian front. So I'd rather we say TRICARE for all, because I think that's more accurate. A lot of the issues with Medicare, such as billing, disappear under a single-payer system. A lot of the bureaucracy disappears under a single-payer system. And so the changes Senator Sanders made to Medicare in him and and, uh, Representative Jayapal's health Medicare plan— addresses a lot of those concerns that people have when you get into the letter of it. It removes all of these bureaucratic middlemen and makes sure everyone's in your network, and you just get the treatment you need. It's that simple. Do you need to be billing someone every time you run an MRI? No, just send them up to the machine and run it. How could that be less efficient? So that doctor was upset about the billing, and I said, I just want to get rid of billing. And and what was his response? He was still upset. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not going to convince everybody. (laughs) No, but we had a good, we had a good conversation. He wasn't going to come around, but you know, there's going to be a lot of people who would disagree with me on policy, but they're going to know that I'm sincere. I'm straightforward and we can win on that, you know, just by even having the people who are more, you know, you know, was a suburb too. It was an affluent suburb. We were canvassing there and A lot of those folks are going away from Trump. They're going away from the Republican Party. And it's because even if they might feel that the single-payer Medicare for All plan is a little too extreme, they know the current system's terrible and they know Republicans aren't going to do anything about it. I had a commander who used to say, the best answer... Is the right answer. The second best answer is the wrong answer. The worst answer is no answer. And Republicans bring no answers.
0: Another great bumper sticker. I don't know if that's too large to fit on a bumper sticker, but uh, but I like that
1: too. Um, are you talking to?
0: I figure you're talking to a lot of working class uh, voters as well. Um, And I'm I'm wondering how your policy positions are being not only broached, but explained. I know that you also support Green New Deal, which has a jobs guarantee. So there is something to address with uh, working class voters. But I'm wondering if you're seeing any any purchase with that.
1: Well, and so much of it is, you know, these policies are overwhelmingly popular if you take away the R or the D next to someone's name. Right. So it's not a So we just held our first Green New Deal forum here in Spokane, and we're about to do one in January in Walla Walla, and then we're doing a single-payer Medicare for All forum in Chawela, all over this district in very economically diverse areas we're bringing this message. And the Green New Deal, to me, is an easy sell. A marketing war has been waged on it, but if you break down what's in the Green New Deal and then send that to people in a mailer... And just say, federal jobs guarantee, good wages. Our district, you know, President Trump brags about uh, the unemployment numbers, but in our district, we have counties that have over 10% unemployment. And underemployment's incredibly rampant. 94% of the net new jobs created in the last five years were uh, gig economy jobs. We're talking about Uber and Lyft. I've driven for Uber Eats in the last year.
0: And are you getting people to make those sorts of connections? Because that seems very valuable to me that, that people start to create a connection between what we see as or we hear touted as a low uh, unemployment number and the reality, which is that a lot of people, particularly people in the, in the fifth, are underemployed and are having to work a number of different jobs and then still can't you know, afford things like health care.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. That's what we communicate, you know, is, is if, look, if anyone's working 40 hours a week, four weeks a month, they deserve to be able to have a roof over their head and good food. And nobody disagrees with that. But Like I said, there's a, there's a tactical advantage to being a progressive, to being grassroots because our policies are the best solutions. So everybody else has to dance around and try and figure out how to sell their policies our policies sell themselves. We just need to share them with people in depth and have good conversations.
0: Well, you know, you said recently in a Reddit AMA that you're very angry about how communities have been been harmed by Kathy McMorris Rogers' policies. How do you get across effectively that her policies are not serving the interests, particularly of uh, working class and working poor people in your district?
1: Yeah, well, even, you know, I'll go straight to one of the the things she claims to care about the most, is she claims to care about veterans and rural and farming communities. Well, she voted against the ACA 50 times. Our rural hospitals were losing money every quarter, every year. They were sinking deeper and deeper into the red. The ACA made our rural hospitals profitable. They would have all ended up closing if nothing had changed. She voted against that because of partisan politics, not because of what was best for the people here. She hasn't brought good jobs here. She hasn't improved the quality of life here. It hasn't happened under her, and it's because she's been completely absorbed in partisan politics.
0: And are you finding that that message is connecting with voters?
1: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of voters don't even know who their representative is. Mm. That's something out here, you know, as people say, "Kathy Mc, Kathy McRogers, what?" And you know, instead of <laughs> McMorris Rogers, that kind of thing. And and that's good though, because I say you haven't seen her around; she doesn't show up,
0: right? And that gives you the opportunity to have more name recognition.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's you know, when I first announced, it was uh, it was like, "Who does this?" You know, young guy think he is? And over time, more good people come around and. More people believe in what we're doing, and this is a campaign of optimism because we don't really have a choice but to fight. We don't have a choice but to try and make things better, you know, so a lot of people are ready for that battle. You know, she, she's, not a, she's not a persuasive figure. She's not someone people are inspired by. Even most of the Republicans here don't like her. We have more libertarian-leaning Republicans She's an evangelical Republican. She doesn't have a record to stand on. She doesn't have a big moment to go with. She's an uninspiring, absent person.
0: There is one other part of your platform that I want to call attention to that you call the Income Justice Act. This is something that you say, oh, you're getting excited. I I can see you're getting excited (laughs) just to talk about this. Um, This is a, a piece of legislation that you say that you would introduce within the first 100 days of being in office. Just very briefly, tell us what it is and then tell us what kind of response it's getting when you talk with people about it.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, I really like bringing new policies to the table that haven't had a chance to get smeared yet, (laughs) mostly by (laughs) conservative media.
0: So, this is a queen Uh, slate. Yeah.
1: Yeah, most of it is. Uh, So, there's a few different facets to the Income Justice Act. Number one, the baby bond. For those who aren't familiar, uh, the baby bond's idea is that you you give every baby born in the United States a $1,000 U.S. Treasury bond, which accrues interest over the course of their lifetime, and is accessible when they turn 18 for anything that they want. So every baby born in the United States is a trust fund baby. <laughs> nice. And uh, this this next part of it is a cap on executive pay. So a lot of executive officers and companies and corporations want caps on executive pay. CEOs are in an arms race to see who can get paid the most, who can get the biggest golden parachute. Right. So my proposal, which... Uh, Senator Sanders has a similar one, although I released mine uh, a few weeks before him. I'm not saying he stole it. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: yeah. I don't know, man. Yes. <laughs> we'll look at the tape.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the idea with that is you take the lowest-paid employee of a company, and the highest compensated empl- compensated employee cannot receive more than 100 times as much total compensation than the lowest-paid employee. So let's say you know with with. Uh, the lowest paid employee makes 30,000, the CEO can't make more than 3 million, but that also includes stocks that they're given, any compensation, company car, you name it. And that's something that there's actually a lot of corporate support for because they nobody needs to make more than 100 times as much. Um, and so those are two of the main facets. Another one is a $15 federal minimum wage tied to inflation. Um, and I think that's very is-
0: important because, as we just learned, uh, the federal minimum wage has not moved in the last uh, 10 years since 2009. I believe it's been 7.25 the entire time. So it has not been adjusted even for inflation.
1: Yeah, I wasn't old enough to work last time it was raised. <laughs> oh, man. Rub it in. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
0: Well, so, so then, uh, you know, you, you've talked about uh, how even in the corporate world, this sort of thing uh, is, would, would be potentially received very well. I'm wondering what kind of response this is getting when you uh, talk about it to voters in the 5th.
1: They love it. They love the idea that a CEO shouldn't be making three thousand times as much as their lowest paid employee, which is a real number. Uh, they love the idea that you can be born with some, with thousand dollars in U.S. Treasury bonds, and even if you come from a horrible background. Because I'll tell you, in my experiences in law enforcement um, and and working with, uh, with with marginalized and disadvantaged communities, in my in, as, a, as a volunteer, I have met people who. Got dealt the worst hands you can be dealt in america i i met someone who at 12 years old was given methamphetamine injected with methamphetamine by their parents and there are that's one of the that's I've, i've i've seen and i've been told about worse and the idea that you can get dealt this horrible hand in life and then you turn 18 and you have your own little trust fund, your own jumping off point where you can you know, make something of your life. You can go get your college education and not be in debt. You can get a good job after that because there's the green economy of jobs. You can make a living wage in that. Your employer doesn't need to provide you insurance. You can, anyone's in network, it's all holistic. And people respond to that because I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the ideals this nation was founded on, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you do not have the ability to have liberties if you don't have your life. And you should be able to pursue happiness. And you can only do that if people have good health care, if they have good jobs, they have a living wage, and um, that's that, that resonates with people. It's not a hard sell. I want you to have good jobs and health care. What's the other side got? You know <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, look, I encourage people to check out all of your platforms that are available on your website. Uh, And I will just close by asking something that you asked of your followers on Twitter. If you could put anything on a billboard, besides, of course, a campaign poster, what would it be? And I think this is a very interesting question because I think it gets to the heart of what your central message is. So so what would that be for you?
1: Should you pay more in taxes – than Amazon. Oh,
0: that's great, man. Actually, I, I think <laughs> that would play well on this side of the mountains as well. <laughs> well, listen, Chris, this has been tremendous talking with you. Uh, I will just uh, end by saying that grassroots campaigns need funding. So uh, where can people go to donate if they like what they're hearing?
1: Act Blue is the best. We have a website and it does have it on there. It's just armitageforcongress.com. But go to ActBlue, type in Chris Armitage. It's A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E please chip in. We are working so hard out here. It's amazing how many people are giving their, their free time and, you know, taking time away from so many other things to work on this. And we need the tools to be able to grow. Cause as we have all this enthusiasm, we need to get more yard signs. We need to get more bumper stickers and we want to put up that billboard. Nice. So uh, that's, that's the main ones.
0: Chris Armitage is a Democrat running for Congress in the Fifth Congressional District in Washington. Chris, it has been such a pleasure, man. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I want to come back on again soon. I enjoyed this a lot.
0: So let's just dig right in with a couple of calls to action. The first is at the national level, and it has to do with Attorney General William Barr. As most of you probably know, Trump crony Roger Stone was set to be sentenced in federal court for obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, and witness tampering. You know, two of the three things that Trump was impeached for. And in the Stone case, the prosecutors had recommended a sentence of seven to nine years. And when Trump got wind of this, he said it was, quote, very unfair and demanded that Bill Barr push those prosecutors to ask for a lighter sentence. All of those prosecutors worked for the DOJ, by the way. Barr went ahead and did this, which even in an era when things are highly unusual, was highly unusual. In response to Barr's move, all four of those prosecutors withdrew from the case in protest and one quit the DOJ entirely. This is actually the good news part of the story. Another bit of good news, and God knows we could use some of that right now, is that following Barr's action, over 2,000 DOJ officials signed a letter demanding Barr's resignation. This is good news because it means that there are still people working in the executive branch who are in possession of their morals and scruples and are willing to behave accordingly. Now, none of this is going to make Barr resign, of course, but we can turn up the heat on him with some help from Congress. As you know, Congress is opening an investigation into Barr starting on March 3rd, and Barr apparently is gonna testify. Here's where you come in. Those of us with Democratic members of Congress can call and express our support for the investigation and also, and this is a really good ask, we can ask that Congress defund the office of the AG until Barr and his appointees recuse themselves from any and all Trump-related investigations. You know, Congress controlling the purse strings and all. And, of course, if you have a GOP member of Congress, you can demand that they do everything that I just mentioned. And then afterwards, go onto Twitter and tweet about how your member's office responded with the hashtag #Defund. So that is your first call to action. There are a couple of other ways to get involved at the national level. As I mentioned here before, there is the Postcards to Wisconsin program, and that is to encourage people to vote in Wisconsin's primary. As we know, Wisconsin is an absolutely crucial state for Democrats in 2020, and Postcards to Wisconsin co-creator Reed McCollum says that people who vote in the primary are 80% more likely to vote in the general election. There's also Indivisible's Payback Project text banking effort to flip what are now 10 targeted GOP Senate seats. I have been doing this for a couple weeks now, and it's pretty cool. It's intuitive. It's easy. I have information on both of those programs at IndivisiblePodcast.org. Now, moving on to what you can do here at the statewide level, there are canvassing and phone banking events happening all over the state this Saturday and Sunday and beyond. Head to wa-democrats.org organizing events, that's one word, to find out what is available near you. Oh, and if you are curious to know what your state representatives and senators have been up to in this legislative session, or if you have specific questions for them, there are going to be a series of legislative town halls across the state this Saturday, the 22nd. I have a searchable database for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. Just go into the search bar, and type in town hall to see if there is a meeting near you. And one last thing, if you are interested in helping in the fight to get rid of Mitch McConnell, Four Rivers Indivisible in Kentucky is currently raising funds to erect three anti-McConnell billboards, and they need donations. I have the Act Blue link for you at indivisiblepodcast.org, so go and check that out. Anyway, there you go. So many ways to get involved. I have said it so many times on this show that the antidote to despair is action. I did not come up with that. I actually don't know who did, but I certainly ascribe to it. I also ascribe to something that Barack Obama used to say all the time that absolutely applies right now. We are the ones we've been waiting for. So stop waiting and take action. And that'll do it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at IndivisiblePodcast.org if you would like to get in touch. The email is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.